Armor. Welcome to the Inner Armor podcast with Dr. Timothy Royer, where we explore ways to train our brains and bodies to become dynamically resilient so that we can all, from professional athletes to ordinary people, perform at our potential. Well, welcome, Doc. We're here for another episode of the podcast. We have a beautiful spring day sitting outside here, and we're going to be talking about learning. We're not talking about learning in a classroom because learning is very organic. All of life is about learning and developing and growing. Yeah, I mean, when you think about relationships, what are you learning good and bad in relationships? When you think about how you handle different stressors in life, there's a learning process that goes on. When we talk about optimization, of the human brain and body, the foundational element is that a human can learn and change. One of the greatest things is how well we can adapt to things and learn how to function in different environments under different stressors. I wouldn't do the job that I do if I didn't believe that people could learn and change and that even in the worst situation, The human brain and body is so amazing that it can learn new pathways. It can learn new responses. It can learn to be at its best in pressure situations. Change and learning is at our core. And that's how when we exist, as we grow, it comes from that. You've talked an awful lot about how stress is necessary. We've talked about whether the way that we look at a lot of different things physiologically in the body, they need stress to survive. The heart needs a component of stress, but we want to manage that stress and balance that stress so that for every equal stress, there's an equal recovery. And there's this balance of the autonomic nervous system. The autonomic nervous system requires stress in order to be able to handle situations over time. So when we're doing things like teaching breathing and coherence, we're creating more flexibility within the autonomic nervous system so that it can be able to adapt to stress and still function at a very high level. Learning happens best when there's more elasticity. When I can teach somebody how to control their autonomic nervous system, uh, they're going to be significantly better at learning. Whatever you're doing, working in the workplace, The system learns better. There's different ways or capacity of learning based on how the autonomic nervous system is functioning. And that's very important for educators, coaches, employers to understand is the people you're working with are coming to you at a different place on the autonomic nervous system. And their ability to function, no matter what their innate abilities are, their ability to function in that situation and to learn and to perform is solely going to be based on where they are in the autonomic nervous system. If they're in a sympathetic fight-flight state, running from a lion in their mind, they are not in a space where their capacity to learn is very high. Same as if they're going too slow and their brain is getting out of gear and they're not focusing well. They're not picking up the information. I've got a colleague that I work with that I can tell when he's not focusing and I'm thinking I should just stop my conversation. Sometimes I do. I just stop and wait for him to 
come along with his focus because in a sense, maybe because I've been around it so much, I can see his lack of focus before he can see it. And I see that I'm wasting the next four sentences. And maybe our listeners know people like that, where like, why are you even talking to the person, right? Because autonomic nervous system has gone in too much of a parasympathetic state where it's checking out. And so there are different levels across the autonomic nervous system that are going to be more receptive to the learning process. And so it's very difficult when you have a young child who's under extreme levels of stress. People don't misdiagnose them as having an attention disorder or a lot of times a learning disability when they're just trying to survive. And that's going to play out in every stage of development is that if we're in survival mode, it's really hard to even learn the foundational things that occur in development like language. But that repetitiveness in the brain is something that when you first watch a child learn and you're looking at brain imaging, it's very interesting. Let's take the alphabet, for instance. The letter A is just an abstract shape, right? That's all it is. It's nothing magical about the letter A. And if you look at imaging with a child and you show them the letter A, and you show them a scribble, their brain sees both of those things. And if you watch how the neuron's firing, we're talking about evoked potential, the timing is exactly the same between when they see the letter A and they see the scribble, they see it in, they, their brain fires up in the exact same amount of time because they're just two abstract shapes. Now what happens is the more I reinforce, that's the letter A. Okay, so I reward the individual. So this is a basic level reward. A, yes. B, no, 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 that's not a B. Okay, that's an A, okay? And all of us did this, right? We, the timing of that reaction in the brain stays the same, but then like it just happens almost instantaneously with enough reinforcement. Now there's different models for what is that enough, enough reinforcement. But all of a sudden, the neuron, you put those two images in front of the child and the neuron responds four times faster right. to the letter A. Well, what just happened at that moment in time? Learning. Right. The brain learned, right? Now, what's interesting is that every brain responds differently to that, right? So I've got Sally, who her, her brain's been firing off on the letter A in the first month of kindergarten, right? And I've got Billy, who he's still looking at the two images, and it's six months into the year, and his brain isn't firing, okay? So the way that we do education, okay, is we just keep moving along because they're both five years, six months. So they both have to be doing this at this pace, but they're not learning at the same pace, right? Now, this model will follow you throughout everything that you learn. When you first learn to throw a ball, when you walk, when you learn how to balance yourself so that you can walk and go up a set of stairs and those things, this is all this like firing in the brain that initially it's the same, but then all of a sudden you learn something new, okay? And again, that comes through reinforcement. If I say data, but it's really mama, right? 
I'm still in that stage where the brain is firing the same with the same auditory output. But the moment I start to say data correctly, then you'll see that firing when that person, that child recognizes data that they're going to trigger that response. So being able to track that brings up a larger question in how we do education, which is another discussion down the road, but I think it's something to throw out there. I would say, what happens to Sally and Billy? One, Sally is bored out of her mind if we're waiting for everybody else to catch up, or Billy is getting left behind because I'm not looking at his brain and seeing, is he ready to move on? And Sally might be able to move at a much faster pace if I would be looking at her brain or something as basic as doing good baseline assessment with kids at the right periods of time will let you know, are these evoked potentials improving that we tailor make education based on the person's capacity? So that's that initial like training, base level learning. There's something that's going on in the brain at that time. And it's going to be hard to, you have to kind of go back to the basics. And I think the place that we, we really see this is um, in visual development. Okay, so I want everybody to think about different ways that you can learn and we use our senses to take in information, which we've talked about that. Like many times we get lost in our thoughts and feelings and emotions and behaviors because we're not really taking in our senses correctly, right? We're just relying on the frontal lobe and not being present on those senses. But when we think of early development and the use of sen sensory input, okay, language comprehension, okay, now expression does involve motor skills, okay, because I have to activate the sensory motor strip, which then activates different things within the, the mouth and the vocal cords and those kind of things. But comprehension of language, understanding language has little to no involvement of muscle control. Now think about that for a second, okay? There's a difference between how I'm taking in something that I hear at an early age and something that I see, okay? Because vision involves not just the shape of the eye, okay, and how clear I see something, but it has a and we've talked about this many times, it has this muscle component to this, this synchronization of the muscles that has to happen in order for me to see data correctly. And if those eyes aren't synchronized, I'm going to see a double image and that child's never seen this before. So the double image, and it's very interesting when we fix this in kids, is they're like, oh, I never knew that there's only one letter there. I thought it was always two. Or I thought the letters were always supposed to be bouncing up and down. <laughs> They're bouncing up and down because there's not good synchronization or eye, good eye control related to the muscles. So what happens early on is we get through some of the language stuff, but we quickly, especially in the U.S., we want to get right into reading because that's what we're going to talk around, talk about in the mom group or at work with my buddies. Hey, Johnny read his first chapter book, right? Like this is big time. This is kind of like a medal of honor, right? Is my kid has done this. But we start them to learn to read and that sense 
isn't ready to read because it involves so much coordination, right? So if I take Johnny, who's can't even walk on a balance beam or dribble a ball, and I'm trying to teach him to read, what Johnny is going to do is he's going to ingrain those patterns that you just talked about in a way that's negative. He's going to find a way to compensate because he wants reinforcement. The child wants to be rewarded. They want to want that reinforcement. So he's going to find a way to read that may not be the best pathway to read. So this is very interesting when we watch kids at an early age when they're learning to read is there are two different types of ways. There's more patterns in that, but two primary ways that you'll watch in the brain it light up as the person's learning to read. So you'll have one way in which uh, the visual areas of the brain will process it and then they'll send it over to the left side of the brain to the auditory side to sound the word out. So they see the letter C-A-T and they, they sound it out in their head or sometimes you'll see a child even do it verbally where there'll be cat and you'll watch the left side of the brain light up and now it becomes an auditory thing that they interpret that. They hear the, they hear the word cat. They don't see the word cat. They, they see the letters, hear it with cat. And then the other area of their brain, which now is going to process it again visually, may input that or output that. Okay, And you watch these three or four areas light up. But then you watch a, a child who's learn they have good visual coordination and they can't they can take in more than one letter at a time they can take in eight letters at a time because the eyes have what is called a high degree of span of recognition and that's what a child must have to start them off as a good reader and span or width of recognition is based on eye muscle control so now we have a stage of learning that isn't just the input but it's what is the physiological being bringing to the table in its ability to learn. So in high span of recognition, kids, they now see more letters and they chunk. So it's not cat. They just see C-A-T and that puts in their mind an image immediately of a cat. And you watch the visual center skip the language center and create the visual image in the brain. And so now they're, they're processing much quicker what they're taking in or learning because their visual fields are good. Now, when we expand this out further, this is, and this is happens for adults too, is we become kind of um, blocked in our processing of things. And this is why you'll ask an adult, what'd you like better, the, the movie or the book? Oh, I, the movie, and I didn't like the book because it was harder for them to take that image that the writer was trying to create and turn it into a picture because they're using too much of their brain to do that. And it's so interesting when I do this with kids. And again, this stuff, we're starting at a very early process, but this applies to everybody because now you're going to learn these pathways that you then carry into middle school, right. high school, college, the workplace. And you don't realize it, but you've developed pathways early on that are inhibiting your potential 
because you're using all these areas of the brain to do a task that was initially meant to be at a much quicker rate. So this is really interesting with kids where we can see it in imaging, but I can also see it in a simple task like this where I'll ask them, draw me a picture of this phrase, the cat jumped over the fence, okay? And so they'll draw a simple picture of it. And the one that the uh, auditory learner, I'll ask him, what color's the cat? And they'll look at me like I'm from Mars. Well, you didn't tell me what color the cat is. What color is the fence and how tall is the fence? I have no idea what you're talking about because they literally are sounding out the cat jumped over the fence and it becomes an auditory thing versus that's not what the writer intended. It's not just a cat jumping over the fence. It's a black cat or whatever color cat and the fence is this big and I want to create this image for you. That's why in a really good reader who goes back to good muscle coordination in the eyes, you can never make a movie ever that will match the book. We accept the fact that this child, Johnny's going to be a poor reader, so we're going to direct them in other ways. And I've had many an adult that will say, well, I'm just not a great reader. It's very interesting when we do a lot of assessments on pro athletes, we do a lot of uh, draft testing. And um, many times I will see that their visual convergence, which is the ability to bring the eyes inward at around 16 inches and less, is very poor more so than you'd see in the general population. That's not saying all athletes are that way, but we'll see that. We even see this uh, at one of our universities where we do all, we test all their athletes, so 600 athletes, is um, they, of those 600 athletes, compared to students on campus that aren't athletes, those athletes have uh, poor convergence and poor, uh, some of the language skills, but their visual, like, divergence, which is looking out 50 feet. And what, and I always ask the question when I see some of these great athletes, it's like, did you become that? Or did you choose that? Or uh, was it kind of the one thing that you could really be successful in because maybe your visual development wasn't good? And But what's interesting is we'll improve that. So in our precision stage of inner armor, it's all about getting that sensory input at the highest capacity as possible. So many times when people think about vision, they either think the lights are on or the lights are off. So either somebody can see or they can't see. But we wouldn't say that about any other muscles in your body, right? Like I I look at an athlete and I'm going to say, well, how much can you squat? You know, how much can you bench press? How fast are you? And I'm going to be, these are all muscle questions. And it's not just, can you stand up, right? But we do that with the eyes. We do that with the eyes even from the earliest stage of development is we take them out of the mix. We look at walking, crawling. Can they grasp something? Can they do all these other motor tasks? But we're not measuring what's going on visually. And um, I would say it's the most neglected thing across the board in academics and sports and in the workplace. But it's the most highly used thing and it's one of the most important things to our learning and development. So that's why number one when we're in inner armor is all about getting that visual coordination down. Not visual strength, 
uh, but visual coordination. I was telling you earlier offline about how I was meeting with uh, Dr. Gamich, who's our consultant on ocular motor. He has this doctoral fellowship in ocular motor movement in relation to sports and academics, which is one of very few people in the country. And I had the opportunity to be meeting with him yesterday and we were talking through things. I was like, Paul, tell me about like, you know, what's a good example of this, of this ocular strength, ocular coordination, whatever this is. Well, you know, imagine a kid sitting down at a piano, right? Or anybody, two people. And it's not the strength in your fingers, right? Like you can just bang on the keys and you actually might have greater strength than the next person. But when I teach you to play a piano piece, now you're using that muscle strength in a coordinated way to create this music. And so there's this coordination. And I thought, man, that is such a beautiful example of, we just expect, hey, you got fingers, there's muscles there, boom, go at it, right? But that's not how it is with our eyes. Our eyes really need this kind of piano piano component to them that they can be very flexible in order for our learning to be optimal. And there is a very interesting thing the eyes do because the the eyes and the brain can only work so fast, okay? And there are things in sports that come at you that are way faster than what you can neurologically process. You can process about 280 miles an hour, okay? Uh, but sometimes there, there's things, there, what goes on in the brain as far as the neurons, but there's these things that are just lightning fast And when you study the eyes, what you find out is we have this, it's really fascinating, is we have this ability to almost look into the future when we're looking at an object. This is why we can make these split-second decisions when it really, if you do the math, you shouldn't have been able to process that. And that's because as that ball is moving or that object, I mean, think how fast the spear is coming at somebody. And you want to make sure the sensory inputs are correct so that you're not adding more stress on the brain, right? So if the brain is having to do cat and listen to that and process it before it can ever even know what it was, okay, versus seeing the image of it, right? Um, then you're just increasing more stress on the brain. You're having to use more electrical current, right? What's very fascinating is when we go and we work in uh, our databases now, probably over 1,500 student athletes, uh, collegiate level. And because nobody works on this convergence and divergence, these are Division One athletes, right, who have probably been coached in their sports since they were 10 years old or younger, right? And they've seen everything. If they're a Division I golfer, Division I football player, right? And we look at their convergence and their divergence, which is the ability to play the piano, in a sense, with those muscles, right? That many times they are weaker than just what the normal population should be. And they've just out of athleticism and repeating things, they've gotten pretty good. But there's a ceiling there that if we improve that, it changes their athletic performance at an unbelievable level. And what we've seen, very interesting, in convergence in athletes, we see 150% improvement, 150% improvement in muscle coordination wow. in about 10 weeks. Okay. That's going to increase the available time 
for them to process the fastball because their coordination is so much faster in their eyes that now their brain has more time to think about, okay, how am I going to position my hands to hit this ball with the bat? In divergence, which is interesting, which is looking out, we still see improvement. It's around 80 to 90%, but it's not the same as convergence, which to me is kind of a scientist says, oh, that's interesting. Where are they slightly more convergence deficient? Because there's no reason one should be better than the other. And we improve both of them, which also improves their binocular vision and their depth perception, their peripheral awareness. But it is interesting to see that. Uh, it's also interesting to see how you take this finely tuned athlete who you think has had everything addressed and all of a sudden you improve their visual coordination. It changes everything. We also see it in the workplace. I go, we go into companies where we'll improve their visual coordination. Like we can't go back to when they were five years old, right? But we can rework some of these things, right? We rework it and we'll see 25 to 30% improvement in processing speed. Well, if I'm an employer with an employee that now can process visually 25 to 30% faster, how much of what goes on in the workplace is, is visual, right? To me, that's another day and a half of work, yeah, right? For sure. And it's more than that, it's less stress on that person because right. they're not trying to play this piano piece that they have no coordination to play with and they're stumbling through it and it's taking all their energy their eyes are just flowing along you know like they're playing beethoven with right. their eyes right and like i said earlier we tend to just see vision as on off switch but it's not that vision's on a continuum based on your muscle coordination which we want to teach in all stages of learning early learning before i even introduce the person to reading, I want that. I want to know what that child's capabilities are, so I don't do exactly what you talked about earlier. Ingrain pathways that are negative. That I'm now going to have to take more time. Every inch forward, I do in that negative pathway where they're having to use multiple areas of the brain to to process language, process written text. I've got to unlearn that sometime along the way, right? We're setting that base first, the base of growth. We talked about that at the beginning. Okay, like my capacity on all three of these levels is really going to be dependent on what my autonomic nervous system is doing. And it all goes upstream up to the autonomic nervous system. Any learning that's going to happen, any behavioral interaction, any emotional, any psychological is all going to start upstream. And if that autonomic nervous system is not balanced, we're never going to see what that person's true potential is. Even in somebody that we think is at the highest level they can be, if upstream their autonomic nervous system is out of balance, then we're not getting all the potential that's in that brain and their body. And that's where we want to start. And then one of those components, apart from the autonomic nervous system, that's super important. And that's what we'll do with like, the precision side of our program is we want to develop binocular skills. We then test speed and accuracy. And so we know what an elite quarterback, the fastest they can go, but they have to give up a little bit of accuracy to be able to maintain the speed that they're going to need because they have to make decisions so fast. And this is 
the the roadblock that I hit with a lot of quarterbacks and in the NFL, 11 of the starting quarterbacks I've either assessed in one way or worked with. So I know what these numbers are, right? Is that it's the balance between the two that makes make them efficient. But you'll get these quarterbacks because they're very cerebral many times that get so hung up on perfection that they lose the speed and they saw it perfectly and they analyzed it perfectly, but there wasn't enough time left to actually initiate in that three seconds what they needed to to deliver the ball, right? Or I have another kind of set of quarterbacks who like, they're making fat, they're making these fast decisions, but they're doing it without all the input. And so their their accuracy goes down. So we have, we can measure this and we measured it in our vision testing. And so we want to be around a 0.4 in our task, 0.4 seconds uh, visually with an accuracy of around 85%. That that's the sweet spot for that particular position and where it's going to be. It's going to have some errors, but it's not going to have too many errors. And I would say that formula applies to a lot of every area of our life, really, when it comes to processing speed. You know, um, we don't want to be obsessing, okay, to the point that we slow down, but we also don't want to be going so fast and impulsive that we're making mistakes. There's actually a great study done um, around 2012, 2013, where they, they looked at gray matter and white matter in the brain before EEG training and biofeedback training, what we do a lot of, where we're trying to teach these new pathways and grain these pathways. And then after 12 weeks of training and imaging, real live imaging that measures gray matter, white matter. The white matter is more like the, the phone lines that are connecting everything. And the gray matter is more like the storage areas. But literally significantly more gray matter and white matter after doing these neurological and physiological training operant conditioning on the brain, which speaks to a very interesting component about how we can change our brain without like going in and doing surgery or adding something to it. Why wouldn't we go back to the brilliance inside of us and instead of, you know, looking for that pill, so the best medicine for the brain is itself. And, but the, the difficulty there is you have to give the brain the ability to see itself either correctly or incorrectly. You know, is what's it doing wrong in its swing, okay, that it needs to fix. And that's where if we give it feedback, it's a brilliant device that can take that feedback and learn. And that's what we have to do in all these clinical disorders as well is, is mirror back what's going so the brain can see, oh, that's what you want me to do differently. If I can do that, it can learn. Another fascinating study is this one they did with 11,500 people. 11,000, that, that's not a small study. 11,500 people over nine weeks where they just taught them how to breathe in such a way that their heart would be coherent. It would have a perfect balance of sympathetic and parasympathetic. Decrease in depression of 
decreasing anxiety by 48%. We've kind of been sucked into, well, I can't do this. Yes, you can do this. It doesn't have to be the bags of prescriptions. And again, I'm not opposed to medicine. We're just using it. We're we're negating the beauty and wonder of the brain and how it can function. Yeah. You got this out there. Let's go. Let's go. You're an amazing creature. And let's use these things inside of us to make us stronger. This has been the Inner Armor Podcast. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Would you please follow or subscribe and make sure to leave us a review or comment. You can learn more about Inner Armor, Dr. Royer, and how to perform at your potential by going to forgeinnerarmor.com.